Great white sharks have one of the widest geographic ranges of any marine animal, but they do have their hotspots and favourite places such as South Africa, Mexico and Australia. But the big surprise is seeing them in other unsuspecting places, like North Carolina. Welcome to Shark Week, the podcast. I'm Luke Tipple, marine biologist and a frequent voice on my favourite things, oceans and sharks. I'm stoked to bring the magic of Shark Week right to your ears. Sharks have been a big part of my life for over 20 years now, studying them and diving with them all around the world. I guess that's given me some of the street cred to participate in many Shark Week documentaries throughout the years and now to be your host. So whether you've never seen Shark Week before or you've been a diehard fan over the 30 plus years it's been around, this podcast is for you. On this podcast, we're talking about great whites off the coast of North Carolina, and I'm delighted to welcome two stars from the Shark Week special, The Haunting of Shark Tower, marine biologist and shark expert Corey Burkhart, and professor at Arizona State University, Dr. James Sulikowski. Welcome to the show, guys. Happy to be here. Thank you. So, Corey, let's start with you. Tell us what you do, who you are, and and what keeps you busy. Well, uh, I am a marine biologist. I work primarily with sharks and primarily with tiger sharks, oceanic white tips. So this was a really incredible experience for me. I'm based in Tahiti, which is a little bit different than North Carolina. So this was a huge adventure for me to get out. uh, Pretty cold, but bigger sharks. I work with sharks for the last decade, and I've been really excited to get into Shark Week stuff. And as soon as I got the call for this show and heard about great white sharks showing up in North Carolina, I was on it first flight straight out. I I can imagine that was a a pretty good call to arms for you. So, I mean, you you say you got that call and that that all sounds kind of cool and like the the shark world for the people in the know and whatever, but how does that actually come about? You, You hang out in Tahiti, you're obviously very qualified to be, you know, researching sharks out there, but how do you get a call to go out and hang out off North Carolina chasing down great whites? Um, from what I hear, nobody else was crazy enough. That was kind of the thing. ABC called me and he's like, hey, <laughs> you know, I've got this crazy place. It's a haunted oil rig type situation out in the middle of absolutely nowhere, 25 miles offshore. There's great whites lurking. Do you want to come? And of course, by ABC, we're referring to cinematographer and Shark Week legend, Andy Brandy Casagrande. Yes. And obviously, first thing I would say was, Absolutely. And two days later, I was on a flight, took 20 hours to get there. So it was unexpected. And I was actually really grateful for it. ABC and I have worked together. I've flown him out to here in Tahiti to work with some crazy shark stuff. So that relationship and him knowing that I can handle my own in the water with potentially big sharks, that's what got me out there. Um, Corey, you, you left a, a beautiful country to come to check out a haunted tower in the middle of the ocean. Uh, tell me about that experience. Well, nobody told me it was that cold. That, so that might have changed my perspective. <laughs> I got there with like, you know, flip-flops, T-shirt, and shorts, and it was, it was freezing out. Um, but it was a really cool experience. Just getting to the platform itself was scary enough. You're riding this tiny helicopter, and of course, everybody's like, oh, yeah, it's great, it's fine. And we actually had mechanical failure right before so everybody was kind of rock paper scissoring on who would be that first flight to get to the tower nobody wanted to go on it first (laughs) but it was incredible and this whole experience getting to to meet James he's somebody that I've you know of course read his work for for a while been looking up to him so it was really cool to bring people from all over the world into one place and 
we got a big shark. So that was pretty insane. Now, when, when we talk about tower, um, set the scene for people a little bit more. It's it's uh, a decommissioned oil rig. Is that right? It's a it's old Coast Guard station, but it is built essentially like an oil rig. If you envision that in your mind, it looks a lot like that. It's about 20, 30 meters up. You've got these huge pillars that some parts now are so thin and rusted out, it looks like a Pringle chip. Like if it hit the right way, it would just collapse. So it was it was sketchy, definitely. But it was out there. It's supposed to be a Coast Guard station. It's been decommissioned. Um, it was bought up. It was turned into this world's most haunted, dangerous accommodation. And they weren't joking. I mean, it was... It was intense. You land on the helicopter on the roof. The wind is just ripping, and you realize how isolated you are. There was no no connection to the outside world, anything. We were there for a week, and there are sharks surrounding it. So you got murky waters, rough waters. The only way to get down into those waters is this tiny little winch that the guy welded himself, dropping you down that 20, 30 meters, swinging in the air like a giant cat toy, and potentially great white sharks underneath you. Okay, so take us from the the idyllic warm waters of Tahiti to your brain as you're getting lowered on this janky little crane miner's basket thing out of the bottom of a rusted out tower to go and find sharks. See, that's the thing. They told me it was a basket. There was no basket. It was just like a piece of, it was just like a, a, a like a, thing. I don't even know what to call it. It looked like a rodeo pony that you sat on with just handles. And it was about maybe a few inches wide and there was nothing to clip you on. So you're just sitting there holding on for dear life, lowering down, the winds are swinging you around and you realize you've got all this scuba gear on, you're holding the camera. And it's like, if you fall, you're probably going to break your spine. So I was more scared of that initially going down into the water for the first time. I was more terrified of the entry But then once I got in the water, you realize the visibility is only about 10 feet. So if there is big sharks out there, you're probably not even going to have any idea until they're right up on your fins. So that was pretty intimidating, as well as the fact that we could only dive at slack tide. Once that current rips out, you can't get back to the tower. You can't get raised back up. There's nothing else for 25 miles. So there was a lot of things factoring in. It wasn't just, oh, there might be big sharks. It was, oh, there might be big sharks. And you might not see them until they're right on top of you if you don't get sucked away by the current, if you make it down this giant rust bucket. Or die from, uh, <laughs> from how tightness. tall was it? it was, it's uh, kind of hard to tell on camera. but Yeah, yeah so it was, it was about 20 meters, like 66 feet for, for those in the U.S. So it was quite tall. And you're lowering that way and you can feel the cable just like cracking and creaking the entire way down. It was pretty intense. And then doing that at night as well. Doing it a day was scary enough, and then doing it at night was just a whole nother, whole nother beast. So yeah, if you haven't seen the show, and you really should, but uh, the way I thought of it was it almost looks like a, a capital L attached to uh, a cable that's lowered from a very sketchy looking rig. And Corey's sitting on there, I, I imagine it's had some kind of little saddle thing on it, in full scuba gear, carrying camera and everything, getting lowered 60 feet down in high winds into uncertain waters at night, hoping to find a great white shark. Do you really like ABC that much that you thought that was a good idea? I told him to never call me again. I was, I was, I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> That's the last time I pick up the phone when you call. We've been friends for a really long time. We've done a lot of crazy shark stuff together. But honestly, I'm so glad I did it. It was such a thrill. It was so much fun. Seeing the sharks at night, it was something that was once in a lifetime, honestly. And I'm really glad that I did it. 
So James Corey's had her sketchy experiences out there. Um, you're working out there a lot. You must have some similar ones. Yeah. I mean, when we were filming for the shoot, uh, it doesn't surprise me. Corey was like dealing with tons of weather. I mean, we were out, uh, imagine being overnight on a boat and the seas are so rough that we broke the anchor line and started drifting away. Like everybody's like, next thing is we're being capsized and we're swept away. Perfect storm. We're done. So it was not pleasant. I mean, these are 10 to 12 foot seas, uh, right close to shore. So it was, it was pretty hectic and scary. So the whole mantra, the aura of this haunting of Shark Tower really was affecting everybody. So it's all came to a head, you know, at the very end. And Corey's going to say, man, that, look, I don't want to spoil anything, but we literally caught that 12-foot shark within the last five minutes before we had to leave. So it all came together. The rough diving for her, the rough weather for me and our crew, everybody working together, pulled it all off. So sketchy is, is hell for everybody but man the payoff was insane and with your work out there i mean that sounds absolutely horrific um but also kind of fun at the same time <laughs> yeah well and let me tell you about this it was in the middle of the night right when this thing broke <laughs> i remember coming off the bed hitting my head on the ceiling uh and like what the hell just happened you know and then bobby earl's going crazy you know and he's like now nah, we're out of here you know and so we headed home and how regular is that experience for you in those waters? Uh, it's pretty, I mean, North Carolina, the conditions can change literally like within five minutes, you know? So when we were out there, it was supposed to be beautiful, flat, calm. Next thing you know, it's 12 foot seas. So it's just so unpredictable. And how often are you guys actually in the water? Is it mostly sort of long line stuff or fishing stuff that you're doing? Or does your research involve getting in the water and diving as also? Yeah, no, a lot of our stuff is topside. Um, so a little flip of what Corey does, we're catching and tracking and tagging. We are developing new technology with the company AI Medical to do underwater ultrasounds. And that would be really cool, Corey, to the stuff that you're doing. So just, you know, as the shark's going by, you get an ultrasound of, of the shark to see if it's pregnant or not, man. Super cool stuff. But yeah, I've been on some dives where it's particularly at night where, you know, the lights go off and they come on and you're surrounded by giant sharks. I mean, I, I remember one time where there was a, a lemon shark, literally light came on and it was two inches from my face. I was looking at its eye and it was looking at my eye. I'm like, this is absolutely crazy. So it was fun. Now, I can't imagine on this uh, remote location that there's five-star service and a spa. Um, how does it actually function as a, as a hotel? You know, uh, I kind of question that myself after staying there. But <laughs> I will say the electric blanket was essential. Without that, I think I might not have made it. Uh, next to my bed, when I looked over, I could see the ocean through the floor because it had rusted out. And there was parts where you kind of had to test where you were walking first before you actually put weight onto it. So I think for anyone to stay there accommodation-wise, one, their insurance must be out of this world. Two, they must be adventurous. There's no way anybody looking for luxury would go there. However, it was awesome. We were shooting fireworks off the roof of it. It was a really great experience, and I, I was really glad that I went. And you said you are out there for a week and that it was surrounded by sharks. What sharks were you seeing typically on a, on a daily dive basis? Mostly the sand tigers as well as sandbars. So we were hoping for some bigger sharks, some bulls, maybe some tigers, a great white. That is what brought us out there is they have a 360 camera with a live feed mounted underneath the tower and a great white was spotted on it. So the hope was we would see some bigger sharks, but the sharks that were there were still amazing. There was a ton of them, the amount of life, fish. It's basically creating an oasis for any kind of marine life 
out in that open ocean. So they all just gathered there, circled around. It was really incredible. A lot of food source, a lot of structure, a lot of potential for big sharks. I think it's a really great place. And it sounds like it's just kind of hit or miss whether you get the the larger ones that might travel through, such as a great white. Uh, James, is that this is kind of your new hood out there? Is it fairly typical that you'd see a great white in this area? Well, that's what we're trying to find out. I mean, there's been a ton of sightings, uh, which kind of brought us there. We know they're there, right? But we don't know in what quantities, how large the population is, when they're there, when do they leave. So those are things we're trying to figure out. And uh, look, it was it was pretty epic to land a 12-footer, right? And to put some serious technology on it. And we were super excited. Look, I mean, it's a group effort. I mean, Corey came out. I mean, we're working with Atlantic White Shark Conservancy. Dr. Greg Scomo has done a bunch of stuff on Shark Week. So I've got his tags on there. I've got my tags on there. So it was a really incredible experience, man. And I got put a plug in for Bobby Earl, man. That guy, he's an amazing captain. He put us on sharks like it was nobody's business. I mean, he was all in. And I don't think without the whole team effort, man, it was the total maximum effort for everybody. We wouldn't have got that shark to the boat. It was incredible. So I'm curious why North Carolina would typically not be thought of, you know, as a place for white sharks. I mean, we know they're up north. They're well studied up there. We know they're down south. They're well studied, you know, existing in Florida waters even. Why not in the middle? Well, it's one of those things where, you know, are they just passing by? Are they hanging out? Yeah. Right? And we really want to figure out what's the story there. You know, is it a, a, a you know, because water's changing, climates are changing, fish are moving in different areas. Are they going to take advantage of that? White sharks are great. You know, they're homeothermic. They don't really aren't dictated by water temperature. So too warm, too cold, you know, they've got a preference. But look, if there's food there, they'll hang. So that's one of the things we're really interested in. Explain homeothermic for us. Yeah, that's a shark that can regulate its body temperature a lot like us or a tuna. Most sharks are, we call them, you know, the lay term is cold-blooded, um, but their body is dictated, the temperature is dictated by the water temperature. So it gets too cold, they got to move. They have to leave. Um, white sharks uh, fall in a group that don't have to do that, uh, which makes them super cool. Again, man, we were there in January earlier hoping to catch one, but the weather stunk. So, Corey, man, if you were there, that would have been super cold. You know, we're used to cold weather, so March was great for us. But, uh, you know, it, it's just a lot of new learning and connecting the bigger picture, which is cool. So to answer kind of the next logical question that people might have where you've got an animal that can regulate its own body temperature so it doesn't care as much about the ambient water temperature, why would it change locations? Food, right? Looking for food resources. And we think one of the things we were using for our chum was tuna, rotten tuna, and they loved it, um, which was great. Um, for us, because it kind of really brought them in, but also begs the question, like, are they there following the tuna? Typically, you think of the white sharks eating seals off the Cape, Cape Cod or, or some other place, but there's not a, a large seal population there. So they're eating something else, you know, whether it's tuna, whether it's other sharks. Again, um, they're taking advantage of a location based on a resource and trying to figure out what sharks are there beyond white sharks is something we're really interested in too. And it's really interesting what Corey said, because when she was down there, I mean, they saw a bunch of, you know, you know there's some maybe some sand tigers and sandbars and, and other things. Um, but if you go to these other areas, man, we were catching hammerheads and, you know, every other species you can kind of imagine, which is super cool. So how does it all fit is another story. And it does make sense that as they're moving through for whatever 
you know, stimulus they might be following or whether they're traveling through or maybe, you know, hanging out in areas that are yet to be discovered, that an oasis like the one Corey's describing may be one of those stop-off spots. Now, Corey, you mentioned that there was, you know, video of a great white out there. And I think there's been more than the one, right? There was a, there was a video from the, um, from the actual tower, but there's also been user-submitted videos of great whites in that area. Is that right? Yes. A lot of spear fishermen going out and having these encounters with sharks, um, not at the tower, but nearby on the wrecks. So it's kind of that same hint at wanting structure, something to gather this marine life into one concentrated area. It's going to make it a lot easier, especially if they are doing these giant migrations from north to south, everywhere in between. It's a lot easier to find all your food in one spot than to search kind of haphazardly every just every direction. So finding structure tends to bring a lot more food source potential. So James, talk us through that project that you're out there. Obviously, you're you're trying to find sharks, trying to get tags on them. What is the the end result in your mind of that research? Yeah, I mean, one of the things we're really interested in is is that area in general. We are finding that there's a lot of pregnant aggregation of pregnant females from multiple different species of great whites. Uh, not great whites, right? Not white sharks, but for other species, right? Hammerheads, sandbars, sand tigers. You know, so why not the white shark? And that's why we were there, right? I mean, it's an elusive species to catch. It's difficult to catch. If anyone says, ah, I'm just going to go out and catch a, a white shark, they're crazy. You know, it takes a lot of time and effort to do that. I mean, we were on the water almost four full days, and we were lucky enough to catch two, um, one at the very end of the day. And it's magical. You know, it, it really is. Um, and Bobby put us on that, on an area, um, you know, the chum. We were, we were working hard. I mean, we were working like, you know, we're staying out there literally and we living on the boat, fishing off the boat, quarters are cramped, seas are rough. It's cold. Um, but it's well worth it, man. When you see that 12 foot white on the line right next to the boat and you're putting a sat tag on it, it is incredible. I mean, Bobby, Bobby E, we named it Bobby E after Bobby Earl, uh, of the really bugging. I mean, because he deserved it. It was amazing. It's incredible. Uh, and Bobby E now, man, that, that shark is an epic tracker. I mean, it left North Carolina. Again, it went off the Bronx. It's totally insane. It's off the Cape. Now it's off Maine. I mean, it's mind-blowing to people to watch this shark change its habitat, go after you know different food sources. Uh, and the question is, you know, where is he going to go? Is he going to go back to North Carolina? I mean, it's a mature male. Where is he going to mate? You know, can we find the females there? Those are the next steps, next questions. And it's totally insane. And what type of period of time was that, uh, you, you know, since you put the tag on to where it's now up in Maine? So that tag went on, I think, April 2nd, and it's pinged off the coast. It was in Casco Bay off Portland, Maine uh, this morning, 7 o'clock this morning. I mean, that's so, pretty fast. That's yeah, a long I way. mean, it, it is a long way. And what's interesting is that his movement was very directed, and that's kind of what we see for sharks that are on a mission. And Bobby, I mean, you can imagine he hung around North Carolina, then all of a sudden he's, you know, you know, off of New York and then he's off of the Cape. Now he's off of Maine. Look, going from Maine to Massachusetts, you know, a couple hundred miles, they do that in a day. That's easy for them. You know, it's just like, you know, us going to the, you know, the Boston, 
you know, so it, for them traveling piece of cake. And now the question is, where's he going to go? So when we talk about climate change, we're talking about, you know, long-term trends in, in actual measurable climate change. We can also talk sort of on a more micro level on seasonality and stuff. What are the white sharks looking for? Obviously, they're chasing food. But when you say there's a more abundance of food, is that correlated with warmer temperatures or colder temperatures? Like for the people at home sitting there going, oh, there might be white sharks around. Should they be thinking that when it gets colder or warmer? Yeah, you know, that's another great question. It all depends on location, right? So off of Maine and off of Massachusetts, it's warm weather. Let's say uh, June, July, August um, seems to be the peak times when they're there, when people are in the water. Off North Carolina, I think it's more those sharks are, are transitioning from the colder New England water down to the warmer North Carolina water. And so you get this sort of snowbird effect. But again, it's all really food dependent. I mean, white sharks really don't have to move, but if there's more of a resource there for them, then it's like us. You know, if, if we are in an area where there's lots of food, good smorgasbord, why leave? You know, why go out and, and search for something else? So, you know, climate's changing, environments are changing. We need to understand, you know, the impacts of that on, on what sharks are eating and, and how we might be able to protect these areas. Is there any history that you know of that, uh, and perhaps Corey, you might know this as well in your research for the show, but is there any local history of negative interactions with white sharks in North Carolina? Uh, no, not that I'm aware of. I mean, when you look at, you know, white shark interactions, um, North Carolina is not typically one of those places. And so that's another thing. We know they're there. People in North Carolina kind of know that they're there, but you know, why and for how long. And, you know, those are questions that are need to be answered. People in the water, North Carolina, it's great surfing, beautiful beaches. Is it something they should be concerned about in that great whites might be transiting through their waters and perhaps hanging around? Look, sharks are polarizing, right? I mean, people are, most people are terrified of them. Um, some are fascinated with them, but the reality is, is that the interactions are so low, right? It just becomes about education, being a surfer, doing all this cool stuff in the water in North Carolina, should you change what you're doing? Probably not. We just educate yourself, right? You know, listen to lifeguards, listen, follow apps like Sartivity and look at the research and what they're telling people. Who knows? I mean, now I'd say that we don't know enough to understand the interactions that might occur five years, 10 years from now, as things sort of change, hopefully we know more and we can be more, add more education to that kind of equation. Uh, Corey, um, building off of what James was talking about in you know climate change affecting sort of shark movements, is are you seeing anything in Tahiti, or is it just always beautifully, blissfully warm down there? It is always beautifully, blissfully warm. However, we have seen a shift in cetacean migrations over the last few years. We have only seen one sperm whale sighting in French Polynesia within the last twelve years, and we've had maybe eight sightings in the last year and a half. So we're seeing a shift in these bigger cetaceans coming through. We've never had a great white shark, but that would be something for sure. Um, but for the sharks, we're, we're not seeing too much change there. But I would say the cetaceans, we are seeing a pretty big difference. Um, we are losing a lot of our, our islands. Uh, the last that I checked, when I talked to the research center on our island, we lost a meter and a half of beach just this year on our island alone. As in from the water's edge to the new water's edge or in vertical height? not vertical height from the, the horizontal water's edge. So lost a meter and a half this year, which was a record. 
Has there been, uh, obviously you've done some of the research for it, has there been any results you can share from that, that study of the black tips? Um, it's going to take a while. So we sampled 306 black tip sharks this last year. So we were out every day with our spear guns, and it was actually pretty tricky because once you sampled one shark, the other sharks all took off. So it was a very patient game, and they, they said it would probably take about a year and a half to process all of that and kind of get the data together. And it's really neat because we only sampled adults, but we also had another team using little gill nets sampling the juveniles in the, in the mangroves and in the, the nursery areas. And they did the same sampling 10 years ago. So they'll be able to compare that data between the 10-year difference. I, I don't want to gloss over kind of the feat that you just described to us there in that you went out, you said it was 360-something adult? 306 sharks, 306. Yeah, adult black tips, yes. And are you freediving and spearing with them? Yes, all freediving. So for the people listening at home, that's pretty incredible. In what period of time did you do that? We started in December... January 2020 to 2021, and we finished in the end of June. So it was pretty quick, but we were out every day, all day. Um, I was actually pregnant when I was doing it, so it was a pretty good sight seeing wow. me spearfishing with sharks when I was you know, six months pregnant. But we got the job done. Now, I'm curious as to your you know, mental process and and you know, expert eye as you're underwater down there. And you mentioned you work with, you know, sharks in Tahiti and stuff. Can you kind of walk us through your actual, you know, career with sharks a little bit, just so people can really get a handle on, you know, your analysis of the location? Absolutely. So a majority of my work is done in water. Uh, I do do tagging as well, genetic studies that require capture, but primarily we try to work with everything we do in the water with sharks. French Polynesia is a shark sanctuary even for research, they don't want the sharks being caught. So we have to get creative in how we're going to do these same projects, these same questions being answered through non-traditional methods. For example, if we want to take genetic samples, we can't capture the shark, take a fin clip. We use a modified spear gun. We dive with the animals. We're getting up close with them. And face-to-face, -face, we have to use a modified spear gun with a hollow tip to take these samples out of the shark as it's swimming. So a lot about behavior, interpreting the social structures of these sharks, how they communicate with each other, how they compete over resources. We work mostly with tiger sharks. Uh, we have two different populations that we're studying for the government, seeing how their movements change through photo identification, how their body rates are going, mating, reproduction, things like that. And the oceanic white tips, we actually just started doing actual tagging through traditional methods of satellite tags. So very similar to what was done to the white shark in this episode, but for oceanic white tip sharks. So a lot of in-water stuff, working with behavior, shark handling. A lot of time, other researchers will contract. I have a nonprofit foundation for research. They'll contract us out to collect data, collect samples to send out to universities that aren't able to reach Tahiti. So it's been a really exciting thing to have this job where people will call and say, hey, we need tissue samples, we need DNA, we need this, we need that. And I get to go be the one to go jump in the water collect this data, collect the footage, and send that back out. Sounds like pretty much the dream job, huh, James? It's awesome. That's why I want to go to Tahiti. <laughs> right? Uh, Corey, <laughs> when you say you're collecting them for the government, what is their interest? Their interest is primarily how humans and sharks overlap. And it's really nice because the French Polynesian government isn't focused in a, in a fear way, like, oh, no, we have to protect the humans. It's, oh, no, we have to protect the sharks. How are we impacting the sharks? So, for example, right now, I'm working with the government on a government project 
to track the oceanic white-tip sharks. And the reason for that is during our humpback whale season, we have a ton of whales coming in, people are swimming with them, and they're encountering these sharks. Well, now we've grown a lot from tourism and you have 50 boats out at a time. So we're seeing how the, the behavior of these sharks are changing as more and more tour operators are encountering them, entering their zone, there's more stimulation, there's 200 people in the water at a time, there's 50 boats with engines. So we're tracking the behavior to see how their movements differ between the off-season, when you have zero boats around the island, to whale season, when you have humpback whales, you've got pilot whales, you've got more dolphins, and you've got all these humans flopping around in the water. So we're trying to see how these tours are impacting and overlapping with shark behavior to make sure that we can do it in a positive way that's sustainable for sharks and humans, and it's not a negative impact on either species. Well, is there a scenario in that research where you come back and say, actually, you know, humans are negatively impacting the sharks or the sharks are coming around more because of the humans? Yeah, obviously, those are, you know, very broad questions and very complex to answer. But is there a scenario where you come back to the government and say, look, I found something that kind of messes with our socioeconomic plan for tourism to the island? There is, and that's that's the potential. Um, that's what we're trying to figure out. But I have a lot of respect for Tahitian government because they always put the wildlife first. And it's been really interesting to see how that has shifted. So we've already had the discussion of what if this data comes back? How are we going to manage this? And one of the suggestions was having zones where if we can see hot spots where these sharks are specifically you know, critical zones, key areas. We, do, we don't do tours in that area. It's, you know, we've got a whole island. We've got thousands and thousands of miles of water around us. We can find whales outside of these critical areas. We can stick closer to the reef where these sharks typically don't venture close to. So there are ways to limit. We also work and we do training for all of the ocean guides that go in the water in the pelagic zone. And we actually do a training on shark behavior, how to minimize negative, negative situations by preventative guest safety and also trauma response in case there is something that goes wrong. James, uh, tell us about your work. You're obviously at, at Arizona State University. Um, what is your specialty and what, you know, what are you publishing? What are you working on? Yeah, no, man. It's uh, exciting stuff out here. We, uh, well, first, we study sharks all over the place, right? So North Carolina is like a spot for us. Um, but we do stuff in Sea Cortez, you know, New England, Bahamas, uh, Gulf of Mexico. So we're kind of everywhere. Um, but what we do is sort of develop new technologies to look at uh, reproduction, linking that to movement, and how uh, sharks are looking for specific areas, right, to give birth and how that might be affected by climate change. So, um, you know, we use a variety of different techniques from an ultrasound to, uh, you know, tags on the fin to actually tags inside mom uh, to see where babies are giving birth. So we're constantly kind of pushing the envelope and developing new, new technology. So North Carolina is a new spot for us, and we were super excited to be out there working with all sorts of different species. But obviously, white sharks are, are super cool. And we know they're out there. And we're hoping to, uh, you know, slap some new tech on, on, the, on that species. So here's a chance for you to, you know, do a, a service for your college there and, and give them a bit of a plug. But how on earth are marine biologists researching sharks from Arizona? I know, man. Arizona State, well, look, you know, it's the, uh, it's the most innovative university and anything's literally possible there. And if you get a, a good background support, then literally anything can be accomplished. And that's kind of how we feel. And we've been able to accomplish a ton while we've been there. Look, I've been there for three years and we've gotten into new areas like the Sea of Cortez. You know, we've developed this bird tag. We've developed underwater ultrasound, um, working with great companies. So the future's looking great. You know, I'd love to go to Tahiti. 
that's for sure. You know, some cool stuff going <laughs> out there with Corey. So, um, you know, we just love to be out there on the water. That's uh, awesome. Is is this now, is ASU a place for uh, students to be considering if they want to, you know, progress in their marine biology career? Yeah, yeah. So we've started a new movement. It's called Ocean Futures. Um, and it sits within our, our sort of global future entity. And it's a great spot because it's growing like crazy. We just, we've got, you know, a place in Hawaii. We've got, we just bought a lab um, in the Bermuda Institute of uh, Ocean Science. We're looking at connecting Mexico. So there's a lot of really cool and amazing stuff going on there. And a lot of really things, some cool stuff, man. We're talking about maybe bringing an aquarium on campus. So, uh, you know, we're the ocean futures uh, in Arizona State. There's big things headed that way. Dude, sounds like I've got to get out to Arizona. but I'd, You got to. I, I think I'd prefer to join you and uh, get out to Tahiti with Corey. But <laughs> So what, what's next up for you, Corey? Is it uh, more projects in Tahiti or are you traveling still? In Tahiti. So finishing up our satellite tagging on the oceanic white tip sharks. We've got 10 tags total to put out. We've put two out so far. So that's our priority right now is getting the rest of those tags out. After that, maybe heading to the Maldives. Not quite sure. We'll see when ABC calls me. James and Corey, I want to thank you for your time today. Um, if you haven't seen the show, you're Haunting of Shark Tower. It's one of those really fun shark adventures where it's just about going out and finding the animal, getting some good research done and watching absolute professionals out in the field overcoming some really difficult and challenging scenarios. And uh, it'll inspire you to get out there yourself. All right, that wraps up another episode of Shark Week, the podcast. Stay tuned to this feed for more interviews with shark experts that will give us the behind-the-scenes scoop on what's really happening out at sea. And we're keeping the shark passion alive after Shark Week is over, covering the sharkiest current topics, talking to top scientists and experts, and learning about the latest conservation efforts to keep this amazing animal from extinction. Be sure to rate us five stars and subscribe for more amazing Shark Week content. I'm Luke Tipple, and until next time, see you later.